0: Coming up, what an excellent day for Tom. Well, howdy, folks, and welcome to Minute 27 of The Exorcist Minute, a show where we endeavor to examine, extrapolate, and excavate The Exorcist Minute by Terrifying Minute. My name is Lester Clark.
1: And I'm Keenan Diaz
0: and we'll be your holy guides on this journey through what some have called the scariest movie of all time. All right, so our minute begins with Karis making his way through that crowded pub.
1: And it ends with him saying, I think I've lost my faith, Tom.
0: And yes, let's talk about Tom. This is Thomas Birmingham, or I guess I should say Father Thomas Birmingham because he's an actual Jesuit priest. Folks, I am a little embarrassed to admit this. I was today years old when I learned that this guy was an actual
1: priest. I had no idea either, yeah.
0: I knew about Father O'Malley, who plays Father Dyer later in this film. I did not know about this guy, who is literally the Kenobi to Blatty's Luke, and we could argue is even more instrumental in this whole thing. From a certain point of view, Star Wars minute. Go check
1: it out. Wait, 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 wait. Is that <laughs> is that a, is that a Star is that that's a episode two uh, thing or is episode three thing or something like that?
0: Well, no, not episode three. It would be like episode. Um... Oh shit, <laughs> the, the numbers. <laughs> Lucas, why did you do this? Uh, four, five, six. It would be. It would be uh, uh, five or six. Oh my god, we're gonna get so much flack. <laughs>
1: Wait, wait. <laughs> Star Wars Minute, please, please okay. don't. Wait, wait, wait. Don't. No, 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 no. Not to get okay. ourselves up the hug. What's this okay. point of view thing? So the one I know uh-huh. is that in episode three, Obi-Wan is is fighting with Anakin. Uh-huh. And um, and he's like, the Jedis are the good guys. And then um, in a really maligned line, uh, mm-hmm. with that just completely on the nose and no subtext, Anakin says, from my point of view, it's the Jedi who are evil.
0: Oh, no. I didn't even put that together. No, 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 no. <laughs>
1: <laughs> no, and no, people no. Are, like, are like, that's the, that's the first draft of that line. You know, people don't say, don't say that from my point of view, oh. I'm good and you're evil. Of course people think that, but.
0: Oh my God, this onion is getting deeper and deeper. <laughs> Uh-oh. I, no, no, no. Because from the, the one, the one that I was joking about was Sir Alec Guinness. Mm-hmm. He like, uh, Luke confronts him later on. It's like, you, you said that, uh, uh, that Vader killed my father mm-hmm. and, uh, <laughs> Ben Kenobi says, "Well, it was true from a certain point of view."
1: Said, "That's what a dick, hell thing to say." <laughs> yeah.
0: <laughs> wow. <laughs> and I, th- I think at this point, uh, um, Kenobi is already
1: dead. Right. Um, he, he would be a ghost at that point. Yeah. right? <laughs> so he's just he's just an asshole ghost. Um, <laughs> well, if I come back as a ghost, I'm not gonna I, I'm not gonna be nice about it. I mean, mm. oh, I no, spent no. my I, whole living time trying to be nice.
0: No, I have fucking plans. If, if if I if I come back as a ghost, oh well, no.
1: Well, you know, uh, go ahead and email Lester at <laughs> about any Star Wars corrections.
0: The Exorcist Minute at gmail.com, folks. But
1: well, I I am completely uninterested in Star Wars corrections. Can I hate say <laughs> that? So, so email Lester all you want. We are I under will the umbrella be of the Star Wars Minute. <laughs> That's fine. I I, I I admire Star Wars, <laughs> and I think it's really great that people have fun and, and become better people because of Star Wars. Yes. Um, I know too much about Star Wars. Like (laughs) there's there's too much and there's no need to know anything else about Star Wars. I know more about Star Wars than the Bible, uh, than the U.S. Constitution, than the periodic table of elements. And so even if I am um, woefully miseducated or undereducated compared to people who really care about Star Wars, it's too much stuff.
0: Says the person who didn't get my joke when I said (laughs) from a certain point of view.
1: Right exactly exactly but but you know star wars there's too much star wars you know i used to um i i used to joke when when pokemon was really big that um that all my friends and i and my students we could name more pokemon than senators and i'm sure that's correct but but then they keep adding pokemon
0: oh well yeah <laughs> so well, they keep adding to, senators i mean you know. <laughs>
1: right there used to be 150 pokemon and more to see but mm-hmm. but now um now there's like i don't know 700 pokemon yeah so.
0: yeah you gotta, you gotta keep that franchise alive. <laughs> can't just be on the shoulders of pikachu
1: do you know that though that that more than star wars or more than than anything um the the highest grossing media franchise of all time is pokemon oh really yeah because that's video games and movies and cards and dolls and merchandising so all of that is is, is it has outsold star wars or um or anything actually you know we think of star wars Dad. as being this um merchandising um mega thing but which it is but at disney the higher selling uh the higher selling consumer products division is not star wars it is the disney princess line that that can't be true well couldn't look it up that's not true that's (laughs) impossible impossible. see i know that (laughs) (laughs) search your feelings you know it to be true wow
0: (laughs) i'm learning so many things on this podcast today see folks this is an educational podcast i've said it before (sighs) i'll say it again um Dang. Wow. Okay. And uh, by the way, yeah, uh, Keenan. so I, I will for sure get those emails, um, <laughs> but will they will not. be, they will be directed <laughs> towards you. <laughs> I'm covering my own ass right here. Okay. <laughs> <sighs> Make it so I just made a lot of people mad. just that.
1: Um,
0: okay. But OK, let's let's get back to, uh, to oh, this the movie. exorcist. That's the right. Exorcist. Right. Kenan, have you have you heard about this movie? The Exorcist? It's, I hear it's pretty scary. Yeah, it's pretty scary. Um, <clears throat> so, yeah, uh, Star Wars. Yeah. Uh, so this is Father Thomas Birmingham. Right. He is a Jesuit priest and a classical teacher and scholar. Um, He was William Peter Blatty's teacher at Brooklyn Prep. Uh, and then later again at Georgetown University, where Blatty uh, first heard about the the strange case of Roland Doe or Robbie Doe, um, and he got the idea to write this novel. So Roland Doe, Robbie Doe, we've made allusions to it before. That's the um, that's the actual uh, little boy who um uh, purportedly um was was possessed by the devil. So that was that's the actual event that um the book the exorcist is based on.
1: An actual priests went to went to deal with this case. They seemed to be assigned by the Catholic Church and then mm-hmm. afterwards the individual priest said that they believed it really was um a case of possession and the Catholic Church made no official statement on it um, right and this is where we get the idea of the Ouija board even
0: yes right yeah because it, uh, Robbie Doe was playing with the Ouija board he was trying to contact uh, I think it was his aunt Harriet um mm-hmm. who was who was into that like whole spiritualist movement I believe um we definitely yeah we definitely need to have like a whole episode just on uh, on that um on, on that case um now I couldn't confirm whether or not the seeds of the novel were planted in father Birmingham's classroom like like he was he was uh, Blatty got the idea there. I know uh, Blatty heard about Rolando Doe, Doe uh, during a lecture, but I believe he heard about it from one of his other teachers. I think it was Father Gallagher. And uh, by all accounts, Father Gallagher, he was great, great teacher, very animated. He used props in all his lessons, lots of fruit. Um, students in the front row, they had to wear these plastic ponchos because, you know, he would smash these huge watermelons with a mallet. No. Okay. All right. I got my co-host to laugh, folks. Um, yeah,
1: did did Gallagher ever? I mean, uh, first of all, if you don't know the joke, go look that up. <laughs> yeah, Gallagher,
0: <laughs> Gallagher, Gallagher was a comedian. Yeah,
1: did yeah. Gallagher have any jokes besides smashing fruit?
0: Oh no, no, he was, he was like. <laughs> wow that was an aggressive no
1: no i really i really but i really mean that <laughs> like like no. was the whole thing about the fruit or did he have other did he also tell jokes you know he,
0: he also told jokes and actually his jokes are jokes that i remember and that i use in my classroom oh. specifically when i was a um an esl teacher that's english as a second language um teacher and i was uh working in japan i was working in hong kong and even now you know working uh you know in the united states and teaching Japanese, I would tell my students, like, anytime they're having trouble with, I teach Japanese and German, and anytime they would have trouble with the grammar or something like that or a pronunciation or whatever, I'd be like, listen, just be thankful that you already know probably one of the most batshit bonkers languages there is on the face of this earth, right? And talking about English, right? Mm -hmm. And Gallagher had, had this whole thing about like the ridiculousness and the absurdity of the English language that I just, eight up as a kid like Mm. he had this whole thing like he's like okay you know t-o-m-b tomb c-o-m-b coom no comb okay (laughs) c-o-m-b comb h-o-m-b home no h-o-m-e right he he goes through this whole thing it's very clever look it up um but then he's also like he's the one who's like you drive in a parkway but you park in a driveway
1: (sighs) oh my god i always thought that was you
0: no, that wasn't me. You, I stole you it.
1: You used to say it all the time, and I thought oh, really? that was you. <laughs> I, <laughs> I forgot. It was a Lester Clark joke. No, no, I
0: stole it. I shamelessly <laughs> stole it from from Gallagher.
1: We were Lester and I were writing a sketch once, where or not a we were writing a uh, something like a sitcom. It was like Thirty Rock, uh, where it was behind the scenes of a sketch troupe, and then we would see sketches. It was like Thirty Rock, except we would actually show sketches. Right, um, and and then Thirty Rock came on, and we got you know we were like oh we can't do this anymore. Yeah. We got <laughs> Um but but Lester Lester's character said, Why do you park in a driveway and drive in a parkway? And e- and Ian's character said, Lester, why don't you shut the fuck up? Why do you never <laughs> shut the fuck up?
0: Oh good. Yep. So so all these years later, Keenan, I stole that. I oh my stole that. God. I am a sinner. Forgive me, Father. Um, But I only know Gallagher
1: Gallagher. as the guy who brings a watermelon out to the edge of the stage and smashes it with a giant Super Mario type mallet. And that's the joke. So,
0: yeah, that's that's the So, Um, yeah, but like, yeah, he had a whole thing just about like the ridiculousness of the English language. And it is it is it is batshit insane Mm -hmm. um and there are reasons for it there's a reason there's a k in knife and knight and all that stuff but you would have to you would have to go into like the history of the like Mm -hmm. the development of the english you know it's like uh uh, proto-indo-european all that stuff which i i love i'm a nerd about but um yeah my students are like oh my god he's going into that again
1: right? <laughs> but the adaptability of english i mean i don't know if, if this is just um you know some colonialist like um you know english rah rah, rah bullshit mm-hmm. but the adaptability of the english language is one of the reasons why it's so great for literature is how it's explained to me i don't know that that now that i'm saying out loud on on public broadcasts <laughs> like oh wait that sounds like bullshit that can't be right <laughs>
0: <laughs> um, I have I have heard somewhere, and again, like it's 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 hard to confirm these things. Well, no, it's not. <laughs> I say it's hard to confirm. It's it's just a lazy of me not to confirm this. But um, but I have I have heard it said that because of you know colonialism and because you know England was you know r- the supervillain of the you know the imperialist age and trying to take over the world in 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 a, in a sense, um, the English is one of the most widely spoken languages mm-hmm. in the world. Um, you know, it's it's the language of money it's the lingua franca even though lingua franca isn't english the, what <laughs> right. the hell is that about gallagher would have something to say about that but it's the um, language of the internet right um the language of, of medicine i think of aviation um you know it is it is this like default language that uh you have uh, a, a german businessman and a french businessman and the german businessman doesn't speak french and this french businessman doesn't speak german but likely they both can like kind of like make their deal in English, right? Because mm-hmm. both of them know that. Um, yeah. Um, and this is not to brag about English or anything like that. Um,
1: <laughs> not, yeah, we didn't do it. No. <laughs> but yeah, in India, you're more likely to meet someone who speaks some uh, – meet someone who speaks English than your own uh, regional language because the regional languages haven't permeated throughout India, but English has. Right.
0: Yeah, right. So very interesting. God, we
1: we went off on – like Where the hell are we, English. Gallagher?
0: Gallagher. <Yes. laughs>
1: oh, <Okay. laughs> God, let's get started. We, oh, I We've we got
0: that. a lot okay. of compelling things here. <laughs>
1: But so Gallagher is the one who who teaches him about Robbie Rowe, potentially, right. and then but then Birmingham was with him at high school and college. That's very yes. interesting,
0: right? He was he was I believe going back to languages. He was Blatty's Latin teacher. Uh-huh. In any case, Father Birmingham did suggest to Blatty that he used the subject of uh, demonic possession for an oratory project. So he was instrumental in uh, helping Blatty develop the idea for the book. Um, now later. When the movie is getting made, Blatty approaches Father Birmingham to work on uh, work on the film. Um, at first, Father Birmingham is reluctant. He's a little bit worried that this is going to be another Rosemary's Baby, which I'm curious as to what Catholics thought of that movie. Because we know, Keenan, like you pointed out earlier, Catholics were flocking to The Exorcist in, in droves, right? It was like being promoted by the church as sort of this important film. What did they think of Rosemary's Baby?
1: I, I'm not sure about that because Rosemary's Baby doesn't really deal with religion directly it deals i mean it doesn't deal with catholicism or christianity directly Mm -hmm. our our characters are somewhat secular or perhaps atheists and then they encounter the devil or a a witch's coven um depending on how you're looking at it so i don't know what they would have thought about that that's a very interesting question but you could see how how that movie um, you know, made Satan or Satanism kind of funny. Um mm. scary, but but also the characters who are uh the witches, it, it's we're not sure in the movie whether Rosemary is making it up or not in her head, whether she's paranoid or not. And there's witches who are um who are <laughs> summoning the devil and um getting getting people impregnated and and mm. the Rosemary's baby that she's pregnant with might be the devil's baby and that kind of thing. Um right, right. so I'm not really sure. Uh we haven't talked about the influence that Catholics have on the movie industry and how it was mm. formed in the 1920s, do you know about the uh, the League of Decency, which is sometimes no. called the Catholic League of Decency?
0: That sounds like a superhero like a <laughs> cartoon show like Saturday morning but like oh, very oh we
1: can we can get it up. Yeah, so it was called the League of Decency. Um, that's what they Meanwhile, called at the
0: League of Decency. <laughs>
1: Which is what, St. Peter's Basilica? Or like I don't I don't know if you get much better better uh, headquarters look than, than St. Right, Peter's. Yeah. <laughs> um but it was called the League of Decency, and so you sometimes hear it called the Catholic League of Decency, just so mm. like in historians can kind of put it in perspective, but they didn't call themselves that because mm. you know, Catholics don't like yeah, same. It's like, they're the League of Decency. We're not the Catholic right, League yeah. of Decency. And um, this was the one of the big boycott groups in the 1920s. So as they became huh. big uh, scandals of Hollywood stars, this lady, Peg end- Endwistle, um, she was an actor and she was at the end of her rope. And she went up and uh, jumped off the H in the Hollywood sign and mm. killed herself in this spectacular oh, fashion. And yes. then there were other scandals like Fatty Arbuckle's manslaughter and rape trial. Mm. Um, what else would there have been? Um, even the idea that, like, Rudolph Valentino's death by, um, by natural causes had caused so much uh, outcry and outpouring of grief, like, that was worrisome to the Catholic Church. It was like the, oh. the, the movies have this draw that that is, um, you know, if not evil, then at least indecent –
0: Right. So they
1: started to get a boycott group and they were the biggest boycott group. And that spurned Hollywood to start self-censoring with this thing called the production code, which was Mm -hmm. basically what you could and could not do in movies. So that was directly because of Catholic, um, Catholic boycotting and Catholic uh, fears of a Catholic boycott. And back then, the uh, in the Sunday sermons, depending on which parish you were at, uh, the Catholic Church had issued um, to the priests, they had issued recommendations of which movies people were allowed to see and not see. So I forget what order it is, but they would they would rate things as A, B or C. And I forget what it, whether A was the worst or A was the best. But it'd be like, oh, this weekend we have this movie from Paramount and uh, we have this movie from from MGM. And uh, so say our dancing daughters, we give that a B. Be careful about that. Uh, don't uh, don't bring kids to that. It's not very good. And they would they would kind of keep track by studios and which studios had the dirtiest movies. Wow. And so you would like like with your um i don't know where they would do it in the sermon but you know there's stuff like let's think of our brother lester he's sick right now and let us pray for him you know that sort of segment section and then after oh. that they would say like like here are the movies you're not allowed to watch this week
0: wow so you're telling me kenan the whole like all of this uh you know this c- uh, censorship movement and you know we're we're getting all like like the you know the 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 letter codes and it's like r and mm-hmm. pg and all that stuff it was the Catholics the whole time.
1: <laughs> yeah, it might have come out. Uh, it might have come out um, uh, without the Catholics because there were Protestant newspapers um, that were critiquing Hollywood, but the big, the big economic power came from this boycott from the Catholics. Yeah, well, that is really interesting. Yep, yeah, that's where all of our movie censorship in America comes from.
0: The League of Decency. Wow, interesting. But meanwhile, on the Exorcist. <laughs> It's funny. It's like after all of that, then they promote The
1: Exorcist. Yeah, because I think so. Unlike Rosemary's Baby, right? It's just Satanism unchecked. And um, oh, I don't want to spoil a movie that we're not talking about or anything. But it's mm-hmm. uh, let's just say, like priests don't come in and save the day, ah, whereas in I The see. Exorcist they do. And it is about the power of of Catholicism. You know, stepping in the bureaucracy works in this case, and the the structures that they have work.
0: Interesting. Okay, so then th- th- this is a more like. We're going to scare them straight.
1: Yeah. And, you know, Pauline Kael w- critiqued the movie because it was like propaganda for the Catholic Church. It was like, look, the Catholic Church, they are real superheroes, right? So we were making fun of like the League of Decency, uh, you know, um, and and the Wonder Twins there <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and all of that. But this does show the, the Catholics as having real power that actually saves people, like physically, not just uh, metaphorically or, or in the afterlife. Right,
0: right. And I remember that that was kind of like pitched to Blatty's class Uh, in, in very much that same way, like when he first got the idea, cause it was like the, the Roland Doe thing was happening like at the time and the professor comes in and he's like, you know, it's like, it's like, oh, you guys all laugh, but like evil is real. Like just, you know, just a few blocks away. Like there's this boy in the grip of the devil. And it's, it's interesting that like we use this, this tactic. It's like, no, 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 no. The devil is real. Look at, look at this. Right. Mm -hmm. Like we need you, we need you to be so scared. But yeah, so uh, eventually, yes, Father Birmingham, he, he does sign on with this, right, as a technical advisor, which I'm guessing means like he was there to help ensure the authenticity of like all the Catholic stuff and all the stuff that Jason Miller and Max von Sydow would, would be doing as priests. Like this is how an actual priest would do it.
1: Yeah, I'd love to hear what he, what he was involved with, whether it was work with the actors or the set dressing uh, or, or revisions to the script or right. any of that stuff. But yeah, I, I would imagine that would be very helpful.
0: Yeah, right. I also wonder, and we'll have to look into this, um, if he's the same priest who later blesses the set. Mm -hmm. um, And we're going to get into this in later minutes, but some stuff goes down on the actual set. Um, and it's such a problem that they actually call in a real priest to bless the set before continuing filming. And I wonder if they were like, well, you know, we got father Birmingham and father O'Malley here, or, or did they get like another priest to come in and do it? You know, like Friedkin being like, we need another priest. Honey, you got priests at home. You barely even use them. You're not getting another priest, but mom,
1: <laughs> maybe if you're good for your birthday, you're getting a mom or, or a rabbi,
0: and then we'll go to Chuck E. Cheese. Um, <laughs> But yeah, he signs on as a technical advisor, and then he also gets to play this role as technically an advisor to our Father Karras here. Uh, so once again, this is the one, two, third person we've seen in this film who's not a trained doctor. Well, hold on, right? we have
1: we have uh, Birmingham, we have uh, Tom we have Vin- here, <laughs> Father Tom. We have, Tom. We we have,
0: have, Father- have Vinnie Russell uh, who played um, who played the homeless man. Oh right, I hadn't thought of that. Right? Father Dyer, then, right? With Father, oh, that's that's number four. Well, so far we have three, right? Um, because we, uh, we have Vinnie Russell, homeless mm-hmm. man. We have uh, Vasiliki Maliros, mm-hmm. who plays uh, Karis' mother. Right. Um, and now we have Tom, right? And yeah, later on, we're going to get um, uh, Father O'Malley. And
1: yeah. then we have um, – yeah. So again, like like the ones with Mary and like the shots of Reagan that just hold on her, we have this really particularly long shot on on not Jason Miller, the professional actor, but on, mm-hmm. on Father Beringham.
0: Yeah, yeah. And like to that. So I'm watching this guy's face and – we get like a really good look at him. He's like right in there in the frame, really big. And his black priest clothes sort of like blend into the darkness of the bar. So it's literally just his big white face. Um, and with the these, collar. And the collar, yeah. With these piercing, uh, probing eyes. Mm-hmm. And he is looking directly at Karis almost the whole time. And I think he takes his eyes off Karis like maybe once. And, and that's a thing that Michael Caine talks about uh, in his book, Acting in Film. Actors, filmmakers get that book. Um, Keenan and I, you know, both. uh, Yeah, it's great. uh, That's that's
1: how I learned to to think about acting.
0: Yeah, it's amazing. Um, and Sir Michael Caine also, uh, he did this workshop, which, uh, you can find on YouTube, just Google, (laughs) just Google on YouTube, um, Michael Caine acting in film and you'll see him. Uh, teaching a bunch of acting students and there's one particular moment where he demonstrates the difference between acting on stage say like with big gestures and big facial expressions right and acting for the camera which is much more intimate right and he shows how small you can go in this class uh, where someone else is doing their lines and uh, the other person says something some word and Michael Caine's face doesn't move but his eyes just flick away Mm -hmm. and everyone in the class gasps they're like (gasps) oh (laughs) <laughs> right like that was the perfect reaction it was so tiny but it said so much and so i'm watching this guy father birmingham and like i said he is honed in on karis in this way that makes me think like he knows what damien is gonna say already mm-hmm. right like maybe they've had this conversation before about reassignment right uh for karis to get closer to his mother but the way that tom is looking at him it's like he's searching he's probing he's like okay what is this really about? Right? We've had this reassignment talk. What is what is really bothering you, Damien?
1: And just look at how how Damien is just slumped into this booth. So yes. when you're looking at Tom's coverage over Damien's shoulder, it looks like they're about equal in mm. height. Um and and Tom is is really straight. He's like like a scarecrow. He's like really, yeah. really tall. And then when we cut to the reverse, Damien is so small and so rumpled and uh, and Tom is towering over him.
0: Yes. And also by contrast, as much as Tom is looking at Karis, Karis mm-hmm. keeps looking away from Tom, right? He can't meet his gaze. He can't meet his eyes. Um, and then we have this this shot. We're back on Tom over Karis's shoulder. And suddenly Karis is moving. He's nervous. He takes a drag of his cigarette. And then he says, I need out. I'm unfit. And immediately he takes a drink, almost as if to like hide those words in between the smoke and the drink, right? Mm-hmm. Like, i'm gonna i'm gonna uh, smoke and i'm gonna drop this bomb and then i'm gonna take a drink like he says he says his line into the drink uh, like and he's uh, and he's about to drink like like maybe tom won't hear this right Right. but tom does hear and it's here that his gaze breaks he's been looking at caris the whole time but at the word unfit he closes his eyes Mm -hmm. and to me this reads as like Oh God, here it comes. <laughs> he knows he knows Karis has lost his faith, and this is maybe the moment that he was dreading. He was hoping it wouldn't come to this, and that's why he was searching Karis's face so intently. And just this tiny little movement says so much. And again, it's not a professional actor, but I would say that this is professional
1: acting. Yeah, absolutely. Mm. Um, I like in, in what's written here and how they're performing it. He, yeah, they're basically dodging what they both know is coming right right so so tom is like but you're a great psychiatrist right this is this is what this is it, it's, You're the it's, best we've got yeah. yeah you're the best we've got we don't want to talk about what's really going on right like mm. like oh no this is about you and your job right and, and yeah. they need you and it, it almost like if it doesn't really matter if you have faith or not because you're good at this let's not address that question right right yeah
0: um and i i, I want to read from the book here because i think Blatty paints a really nice picture of Karras' thoughts surrounding this scene, and it sort of talks about it in past tense, like he's remembering it after, like as he's doing other stuff. It's already happened, but I like what it says about Karras. Um, so here we go. A reading from the book of Blatty. The Maryland provincial had taken it up with him during the course of his annual inspection tour of Georgetown University, a function that closely paralleled that of an army inspector general in the granting of confidential hearings to those who had grievances or complaints. On the point of Damien Karras' mother, the provincial had nodded and expressed his sympathy, but the question of the priest's unfitness he had thought contradictory on its face. But Karras had pursued it. Well, it's more than psychiatry, Tom. You know that. Some of their problems come down to vocation, to the meaning of their lives. Hell, it isn't always sex that's involved; it's their faith. And I just can't cut it, Tom. It's too much. I need out. I'm having problems of my own. I mean, doubts. Well, what thinking man doesn't, Damien? A harried man with many appointments, the provincial had not pressed him for the reasons of his doubt, for which Keras was grateful. He knew that his answers would have sounded insane. The need to rend food with the teeth and then defecate. My mother's nine first Fridays. Stinking socks. the Thalidomide babies. An item in the paper about a young altar boy waiting at a bus stop, set on by strangers, sprayed with kerosene, ignited. No. Too emotional. Vague. Existential. More rooted in logic was the silence of God. In the world, there was evil, and much of the evil resulted from doubt, from an honest confusion among men of goodwill. Would a reasonable god refuse to end it? Not reveal himself? Not speak? Lord, give us a sign. The raising of Lazarus was dim in the distant past. No one now living had heard his laughter. Why not a sign? At various times, the priest would have longed to live with Christ, to have seen, to have touched, to have probed his eyes. Oh my God, let me see you. Let me know. Come in dreams. The yearning consumed him.
1: Ah. Uh. Oh, geez. <laughs> I think I say that after each of your readings. That are yeah. <laughs> in the, the internal monologues. <laughs> Sheesh. Uh.
0: But yeah, like, I think my favorite line in there is uh, Tom's character when Karis says that he has doubts. Tom replies with, well, what thinking man doesn't, Damien? And I like that because it's like, I feel like that isn't said enough today. Uh, I I feel like today, if you are in any way religious and you reveal that you have doubts, it's like a bad thing. Like, you'd be ashamed to admit it. But I I remember saying the same thing to my priest and him being like, yeah, that's normal. That's part of it. And that sort of made me feel better. I was like, oh, okay, these feelings are normal and even healthy. And I like that we have this character, Tom, the provincial Mr. Army Inspector General, as, as Blatty puts it, saying, what thinking man doesn't have doubts. And that's, that is the perfect thing that you say to Damien because he is that kind of guy. He is that type of person who thinks, like, I can't have any doubts. I have to always be in this heart, mind, body, and soul, or I'm unfit. And here we have Tom trying to say no. That's that's humanly impossible.
1: Mm, I think this might also have to do with um, with them being Jesuits as well, right? So mm. we haven't quite talked about that, but the Jesuits have arms of their their organization that are university, like the best Catholic universities are Jesuit universities. They have science labs. They have outreaches. Um, um, uh, pope Francis is the uh, the first Jesuit uh, to be the Pope, and he has degrees in science. He was a, ke- a chemical engineer, I believe. Um oh, okay. yeah so I think there's also part of that about like they are trying to thread the needle uh, between faith and reason and have them coexist.
0: Interesting. Okay, yeah. I would like honestly before taking on this uh this podcast I was a little bit and still am like confused about like the distinction between Catholic and Jesuit. Mm-hmm. Like that's something that uh, and and I I guess that's something that uh, um you know we're going to learn more about as we go. Yeah, it's an
1: um, order within Catholicism that has different different ideas and different um, um mission statements uh, for their priests and their their missions. Like they're their um uh, I said mission statement then missions. I mean, they're their uh their institutions that they go and found.
0: Interesting. I do remember like someone referring to them as God's Marines, and I don't know how like uh, accurate that is.
1: So, <laughs> yeah, that's funny. I don't know if we if that's um us hearing some anti is that pro or anti the Jesuits that somebody else like. They, oh, you know, don't think, don't worry about them. They're the Marines of the, of the Catholic Church.
0: I wish I remember who said it because yeah, like then I would be able to tell us like if this is a derogatory thing or if this is like <laughs> oh no, these are the guys who get their hands dirty mm-hmm. or, or whatever. I don't know, um but yeah, there you go, Jesuits, God's Marines. Um, what well, thinking man doesn't have doubts. Mm-hmm. And oh, and and by the way, folks, did you notice the name of the provincial in the book is Tom? And this is the first edition, right? So I have the first edition. <sighs> I have the first edition. You, like, <laughs> like no, so I wonder if Blatty is writing this and he's thinking, yeah, I'm going to put my old teacher in this story.
1: Yeah, I mean, he put his, um, he put Healy Hall in in it. And he put his, um, and then eventually in the when they're shooting the movie, it's it's a real bar near Georgetown.
0: Yeah, right. He's he's getting he's getting all his friends, like you know this. Uh, This up-and-coming movie maker getting all his friends involved, right? Which, if that's true, like, we could maybe say that Tom was cast before Jason Miller, Mm -hmm. before Ellen Burstyn, before Linda Blair, right? He was the OG, as the kids say. He's the GOAT, which (laughs) I I did not understand this at first. Have you heard of this? The GOAT, right?
1: Uh, Yes, I do know I I was
0: I was watching this scene. I was watching a a scene in Clue on YouTube with Madeline Kahn. Uh, You know, like the Flames. Flames
1: on the side of, the my, side face.
0: of my face, <laughs> breathing, healing, breaths.
1: Right.
0: <laughs> and I looked into the comments and someone had put Madeline Kahn is the GOAT, like in all caps. And I was like, how fucking dare you? <laughs> yeah, um, that's,
1: that was my first response when I saw that. Yeah.
0: Like I was about to reply and then I see that it has like all these likes and I'm like, hang on, is this me being an old man? <laughs> mm-hmm. And I was like, and, and sure enough, right, Keenan, right, GOAT. And you know is an acronym for Greatest of All Time, right? <laughs> and I was like, "Okay, you are correct. Madeline Kahn is indeed the goat." Um, God, this feels so weird to say. Still,
1: though, yeah. There's on uh, Adam McKay's uh, "Don't Look Up." uh Meryl Streep had a bunch of scenes with uh Jonah Hill who plays her son and mm-hmm. and they had a lot of scenes together with Jennifer Lawrence and they would uh you know in between um shooting times they'd call her the goat and they'd say Meryl you are the goat you know these are two what? two millennials saying this like Meryl you're the goat and and uh she didn't understand what they were saying and then she she thinks it means old goat right right cause
0: like that's, you're an old goat yeah
1: And so it wasn't until after they were shooting, I think, when she's like, oh, they're saying that's a compliment. Yeah. (laughs) And then, you know, this scene is interesting because in, in the script, we're in this period of our movie where things are changed in the ordering from the book to the screenplay to the movie. It's kind of all over the place, right? Um, so Blatty has rewritten the book into a completely different order of scenes and then right. somewhere in the screenplay um, to, to film adaptation, you know, this could happen in post-production even, mm-hmm. they've changed mm-hmm. the order of the scene. So there's nothing really telling us when we watch the scene when it's happening. And right. in the screenplay, it's on minute 15 as opposed to in in mm-hmm. the uh, movie. Where we're, now, we're now at what, minute 27 yes so, 27. so that would mean that you know at least at some point the plan was that we heard this scene first and mm. then we meet mary and we see oh. father damien uh going through all of this um so we have him expressing it in the abstract to us and maybe it's a surprise to us that we see this priest go i think i've lost my faith and, and mm. then and then the sequence in the screenplay is then he goes to the um uh, the subway station and uh, doesn't right. give the money to the man and then he goes to mary's house and he tells her he wants to put her in a home and and it's it's almost impossible to think about like how because the movie works so well like like yeah. do, do a thought experiment but what if that was true what if we had that so what would that be if like we see that the first we see of this guy basically he's at the movie uh set he smiles um and then we hear somebody saying, um, "You know, I can't do it anymore." Right when Ellen Burstyn's walking by, and then we get this scene. Um, but here in the actual movie, it's after we've seen what he's going through with his mother and this deep conflicting these thoughts. You know, being both um, son and caretaker to his mother, he's right. both a scientist and a priest. And then we get this line. And in the movie, it's perfect. So I don't know well, yeah. how that would even you know work otherwise.
0: Yeah, I actually, yeah, I, I was I was going to ask you, but it sounds it sounds pretty clear that like you and me like we both like this order the order that it is in in the final cut
1: yeah there's something about that about about being in his shoes for quite some time before he admits to himself what the problem is so we've seen the problem Yes, that that he does. He is ministering and, and does not believe it. And then when we have him confess it, it's like a relief to us. It's still shocking. And our minute ends with a with a really harsh cut. Right. He just says, I think I am um, I think I've lost my faith, Tom. And then we cut very harshly to the next scene, which is really great. We don't get any of uh Karis thinking after that. We don't get any of Tom's reaction. That's just it. The 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 the, the action of saying it is enough.
0: Yeah. And Tom's reaction, we got enough of that like right before he made the admission Mm -hmm. to kind of like tell us it's like he knows what's coming next.
1: Wow. Oh, you know, let me just say one more thing about that, that relationship. Because in some ways, Tom is acting as the psychiatrist to the psychiatrist here. Oh, yeah. Mm. Which is is really interesting. So – so his answers might be seen as unhelpful, but they're the typical of a trained psychiatrist or trained therapist that it's not your job necessarily to provide solutions when you're not being asked for solutions. Your job is to mirror back what to what the person is saying, right? So, so things like, you seem upset to me about that. That seems to upset you. That's basically what Tom is doing. And then that's to help Damien come to his own conclusions, right? So, of course, it feels like a confession scene because we have priests in the dark, right? But it's more like a therapy scene. And I'm really I'm always interested in that, like, you know, how doctors deal with other doctors when they're the patient and, you know, uh, the best uh, some of the Best scenes in The Sopranos come later on when Dr. Melfi, who has been Tony Soprano's uh, therapist, then has her own therapist, who's played by Peter Bogdanovich, who's the um, the director of the Last Picture Show. Right? Um, that like those are really interesting scenes where we see her in a new light and see what it's like to be ministered to.
0: Oh, I love that! Like so many different layers to this scene. Now, the fact that yeah, Caris's job within the church is he is a psychiatrist, right? He helps other priests with their problems, um, and the fact that we have this scene uh, could be interpreted as a confession but also could be interpreted as a therapy session that is really cool
1: yeah and we put it in oh. a pub so it's like oh we're just friends we're just hanging out etc <laughs> and then when we when we get them in the booth look it looks like a confessional just so dark and dim and all of this and, oh. but what's really happening is more of a yeah therapy time
0: oh i love that huh. all right keenan is there anything else for this minute
1: i think we got a lot out of it
0: okay um so keenan Are you thinking what I'm thinking?
1: I think I am, Lester.
0: Folks, until next time, the the power power of Madeline Madeline Kahn compels compels you.
1: Flames on the side of my face, breathing, breathless... Well, that was his job. He was an illusionist.
0: And he never came back.
1: Well, he wasn't a very good illusionist. (laughs)